Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. This episode contains distressing themes and descriptions of violence. This podcast is intended for a mature audience. Listener caution is advised. The summer flowers were in full bloom when Edith Ford and her teenage daughter Doreen strolled to the bottom of the long and narrow communal garden to pick a bouquet of wildflowers. Their eyes were drawn away from the plants and foliage towards the ground. Two tiny bare legs protruded from the other side of a hedge near a public works yard. Was this the child so many people had spent the night looking for? Just two doors down from Edith Ford's home, neighbours heard screaming. Edith was wailing. I can't have seen it. I can't have seen it. Welcome to Season 8, Episode 35 of They Walk Among Us a podcast dedicated to UK true crime. It was midweek on August 1st, 1951. Sheila Ethel Atwood, a pupil at Burlington Street School in Aston, Birmingham, had thrown on her green mac, grey gym slip and black plimsolls. Playing outside, she was making the most of the summer holidays. Sheila was one of eight children, and she was old enough that her parents didn't always need to keep a close eye on her. Sheila's mother Violet had her hands full with some of the younger Atwood children, as they had additional needs. Albert Atwood worked forging. His hours were long and his pay was low. Child care was down to Violet, but the Atwoods had been married for 25 years and were used to the routine. 
They lived on Caversham Road in the area of King's Standing in North Birmingham. Young Sheila Atwood could be trusted to go out alone. Almost everyone knew her. She had friends nearby and neighbours looked out for one another. The eleven-year-old appeared younger than her age, standing four feet tall. Her dark brown straight hair was cut in a bob just below her chin. Friendly and curious, she had a habit of chatting with anyone. At around two o'clock, Sheila met some friends at Finchley Road Park, and they paddled in the stream for two hours. It was a place Sheila went often, sometimes taking her younger siblings. A ten-year-old friend who lived on the same street said they went their separate ways after Sheila wanted to go home. Later in the day, Sheila was seen hanging around on Caversham Road outside her home at number 36, when her curious grey eyes fixated on a bicycle. No one had seen Sheila Atwood since 6pm, and it wasn't like her to be gone this long. The Birmingham City Police were notified that Sheila was missing around 11.20pm, and everyone was worried enough to join the search party. Her mother Violet, Father Albert and some friends and neighbours grabbed lanterns and went out into the night searching for the 11-year-old. Mrs Alice Stevens, who lived at number 35 Caversham Road, spoke about the search. We got together a few of the neighbours, took my husband's hurricane lamp and searched everywhere we could think of. It was no good. There was no trace of her. Another neighbour said that as a father he thought Sheila might have been playing up. As the sun rose the next morning, they were still looking for her. There was growing concern as in recent weeks, two other young girls had been murdered and the culprit or culprits were still at large. Christine Butcher, age seven, from Home Park in Windsor, was found strangled and assaulted on July 10th. Six-year-old Brenda Goddard had also been strangled. Her body had been found in a copse behind her home on Camden Crescent in Bath on July 15th. That month, the link to Birmingham was found when on July 23rd, Brenda Goddard's foster mother received a letter postmarked from Birmingham. It read, I want to say how sorry I am for what I did to your daughter. I don't know what made me do it, but it is too late now. But I can say within the next two weeks they will find my body somewhere. A postscript read, there may be another murder within that two weeks. A correspondence was signed HRG. On August 8th, another young girl was murdered in Bath, nine-year-old Cicely Batstone. She never came home after going to the cinema. It was Edith Ford who had been unfortunate enough to stumble across Sheila Atwood's body on August 1st at the bottom of the garden at number 32 Caversham Road. 
One of her neighbours, Mrs Tippins, consoled Edith before the authorities arrived. Mrs Tippins comforted her neighbour, but she was also shaken. She had known Sheila Atwood for years, and most of the street had become fond of the happy little girl they described as a tomboy. Chief Inspector A.G. Simons, who worked in the coroner's office, knew the Atwoods and Sheila. He was present when Sheila's mother, Violet, had to identify her daughter's body. An initial examination was conducted at the scene before Home Office pathologist Professor J.M. Webster undertook a post-mortem. He concluded the cause of death was due to combined manual strangulation and strangulation by ligature. In a time before the advancements in forensic analysis, investigating officers from Birmingham City Police had little more to work with than diligence and intuition. Superintendent Davis, chief of Birmingham CID, headed the investigation. Officers worked fast, appealing for witnesses via loudspeakers in their patrol cars. A fingertip search was also carried out in the area where Sheila's body was found, but the investigation was problematic in many ways. A number of occupants shared the land, and Sheila's body was left close to Binstead Road, which was a busy thoroughfare. Clothing was noted near the body, and a bereft Violet Atwood was taken to the scene by a female officer to help identify the items. It bothered investigators that Sheila was found so close to the Atwoods' home. The remains were hardly concealed, yet the search party had not seen the body. Christine Butcher and Brenda Goddard had been murdered before Sheila Atwood's body was found. While it was initially theorised the crimes were linked it became clear that the same person was not responsible. Cicely Batstone was murdered a week after Sheila was killed and the perpetrator was identified. John Straffan, who lived near the girls, was charged and convicted of the murder of not only Cicely Batstone, but also Brenda Goddard. It has been postulated that the murder of Christine Butcher inspired Straffan to commit the crimes. The person responsible for killing Christine has still not been identified to this day. There were several people of interest officers from Birmingham City Police desperately wanted to talk to, including 30-year-old Horace Carter, who lived next door to the Atwoods at number 34. He was employed as a labourer at Witten Engineering Works. Wasting no time, officers travelled to his place of work. At around 4.30pm, they informed Carter that they needed to search his home. He nervously told them, I know nothing about her death. My conscience is clear. That said, on the way back to Caversham Road, officers got more than they bargained for when Horace Carter broke down and confessed to what he had done. They cautioned him, but Carter continued talking. 
mentioning that he had an insurance policy. Carter told them, I never really intended to hurt the girl. If you take me home, I will show you how I did it. I wish I could put the clock back 48 hours, but it's no good talking now. It is too late. I wonder how I shall get on for insurance if I get my neck stretched. Surprisingly, a potential resolution to the investigation had been achieved and quickly. Not even five hours had passed since Sheila Atwood's body had been found, and someone was freely admitting to the murder. Horace Carter led officers to the crime scene before he was transported to the police station. In his late teens, Horace Carter's father John had moved to Birmingham from Swansea in Wales. He took a job making brass chandeliers. While in Birmingham, he met his future wife. Beatrice was born there and was the same age as John. In their early twenties, the couple were married in Aston. The following year, in 1906, they had their first child, a daughter named Leah. The Carters had several more daughters before tragedy struck. Leah never made it to her fifth birthday. She passed away after being unable to fight off a third bout of measles. Heartbroken but undeterred from having more children, Beatrice and John were blessed with more daughters before they welcomed a son, John Jr., closely followed by a second son, Horace, in 1921, and more daughters after that. Horace Carter was one of two sons amongst seven daughters. Sadly, more losses struck the large family. One of the older sisters, Lily, passed away when she was 20. Lily had spent the last nine years of her life under statutory supervision as she was classed at the time as a mental defective. Just three years after Lily's death, the head of the household, John Carter Sr., died, leaving Beatrice a widow and the grown Carter children without a father. Furthermore, Horace Carter's older brother, John Jr., was certified under the Mental Deficiency Act for seven years. He was discharged during the war in 1941. Horace Carter was known to the authorities. However, none of his previous offences involved children or any form of sexual assault. Carter had been caught several times stealing bicycles, but his worst offence before August 1st, 1951, was robbery whilst armed with an offensive weapon. He was sentenced to three years in prison. He had committed the crime after being enrolled in the army amid World War II. Carter was living in shared accommodation on Caversham Road in King's Standing when he killed Sheila Atwood. Horace Carter explained the order of events on the day he took Sheila's life. For a child living post-war where rationing wouldn't be over for another three years, the offer of sweets from a familiar person was enough to lure Sheila where Horace Carter wanted her. 
His bicycle was the first thing that caught her attention. Carter had rode his bike home, leaving it outside at the front of the house while he unlocked the back door to get in. When he returned, the little girl next door was taking an interest in his bicycle. Carter used the child's enthusiasm as a way to get her inside, asking her to wheel the bike into the house because he said the inner tube needed repairing. Part of Carter's statement read, When she leaned it against the wall, I asked her to go into the front room. Then I asked her if she would like a few sweets. The statement described how the pair went upstairs and Carter, quote, committed an offence against her. Fearing the repercussions of the 11-year-old telling someone of the abuse she endured after entering his house, Horace Carter murdered Sheila Atwood, smothering the child and strangling her with a piece of string. With the worry of Sheila revealing what happened eliminated, Carter sought to dispose of her body, but bided his time. He didn't want his brother-in-law, whom he shared a house with, to see what he had done. He waited until it was dark, and he was alone. When darkness fell, Carter sprang into action but did not go far, leaving Sheila at the bottom of the communal gardens in some bushes. He snuck back home as the dim lights from hurricane lamps and lanterns in the distance pierced the darkness. Carter left Sheila's body close to a place where it was assumed she would be found, especially with half of the estate trying to find her. However, it wasn't until the next day the discovery was made. At midday, Horace Carter's neighbours Edith and Doreen Ford were picking flowers when they came across the child's body. Carter did express some remorse, saying in the police interview that he was extremely sorry for what he had done. He referred to the death penalty, agreeing it should apply to him when he said, I ought to get topped. Boris Carter concluded his statement, which was produced in his handwriting. There is nothing more to put down except that I am glad it is all over. Just the next day, August 3rd, Horace Carter appeared in a crowded courtroom for the first time. The anger and empathy, particularly from mothers, was apparent in the number of people that turned up. Most were turned away as they couldn't all be seated inside. The initial legal proceedings at Birmingham Magistrates Court were a formality. The trial was months away. The accused was brought up from the holding cells. Small in stature and build, at first glance Carter was unassuming. Handcuffed to a police officer, he appeared slovenly to spectators. His shirt neck was open and Carter was dressed in a mismatched grey striped coat and flannel trousers. His fair hair was unkempt. When asked if he wanted legal aid, Carter responded, No, sir, I don't think that it's worth it. 
It was believed Horace Carter did not have the financial means to pay the extensive costs for representation at a murder trial. Carter was told by the magistrate, Very well. You understand you are charged with murder, and I am offering you the services of a solicitor at the public expense. You can think the matter over, and if you change your mind, you can make an application to me the next time you appear in court. Horace Carter's behaviour was unusual, considering that the crime he was accused of and confessed to was so serious. He gave a big smile to the attendees in the courtroom. It was also noted that at points throughout his confession the day before, he had displayed a laughing attitude. His statement was read in court, something that would usually be presented at a later hearing. Horace Carter was to be held on remand for a week until his next court date. However, he wasn't returned to his cell. Sheila Atwood's inquest was about to start, and Carter was in attendance. Violet Atwood was called to the witness box to confirm the murder victim was her daughter Sheila. She remained calm, but lost her composure as she left the box. The inquest was adjourned until the conclusion of the trial. Sheila Atwood's funeral was arranged for August 9th. A large crowd turned up at St Luke's Church in King's Standing. The venue was at maximum capacity with 200 people inside, and it was estimated over twice that number were waiting outside paying their respects. Sheila was buried at Witten Cemetery in Birmingham. Horace Carter changed his mind between court hearings and applied for legal aid which was granted. In a court appearance in mid-August, prosecutor Mr Pugh announced that after viewing the case file, he believed evidence could be heard in a single day. A trial date was set for September 6th, but that would be moved to the start of December 1951. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full important safety information, visit juviderm.com. 
Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart, a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Mr. Justice Castles, who presided over the John Straffen case, would oversee the proceedings. Horace Carter pleaded not guilty to Sheila Atwood's murder. He appeared composed, as the case was outlined by the prosecutor, Mr. Pugh. Pugh told the court for him the motive for the murder was lust combined with fear. Fear the 11-year-old would tell people that Carter had raped her. The prosecutor spoke of the circumstances in which Sheila Atwood was found. Her face was blue, the mouth was open, and a piece of cord was tightly wound several times round the child's neck. The body was uncovered as far as the thighs. Near her face was a smoking pipe and a blue raincoat belt near the hedge. Horace Carter never denied killing Sheila Atwood but the question that needed answering was whether he was of sound mind when he committed the crime. Dr. J. O'Reilly, medical superintendent at Winston Green Mental Hospital, had the same viewpoint as the second doctor who assessed the defendant on behalf of the prosecution. Dr. O'Reilly concluded that Carter was fully aware of what he was doing to Sheila Atwood and knew his actions were wrong. Dr. Humphrey, who also assessed Carter, said that although he thought Carter had a mental kink, the expert believed at the time of the killing Carter was of sound mind. Dr. William O'Connor, medical superintendent of a private mental hospital in Kings Winford, was the only expert witness for the defence. He disagreed with most points the first two doctors had made, but Dr. O'Connor and Dr. O'Reilly both agreed when concluding Horace Carter had a psychotic personality. Dr. O'Connor believed that Carter wasn't aware and was indifferent to life, 
both his own and the lives of others. The defendant only showed regard for his mother when being interviewed. His concern did not seem to extend to other family members, friends or even himself. The doctor recalled asking Carter about the court case that could result in his hanging. I tried to get some reaction as to whether he was afraid of the consequences of his trial. He replied, I never gave it a thought. I suppose it must be faked. Dr. O'Connor continued, It is my opinion that when he committed this murder he was suffering from lifelong abnormality which, although not amounting to the better-known forms of insanity, was of such a degree to profoundly interfere with his appreciation of right and wrong and his sense of guilt and social responsibility. Dr O'Connor described how Carter had tried to explain his actions when he said, I suppose I must have done it on the impulse. I love all children and would not hurt any of them. The court was told that Horace Carter had attempted suicide when he was serving in the army. He shot himself in the chest. When a doctor questioned Carter about why he tried to take his own life, Carter claimed it was something to do with the weather. Defending Mr Elwes KC remarked that this proved his client was indifferent as he spoke about matters of life and death in a light-hearted way. Expert witness Dr O'Connor was asked if it was a lack of moral sense which permitted the defendant to murder the victim. Not only a lack of moral sense but lack of emotion, the doctor replied. In Horace Carter's confession he claimed he didn't want to hurt Sheila. He led investigators to the garden of his home to point out items in a dustbin. A pile of string was taken as evidence. A second piece of evidence, a blue mac, was pointed out as Carter said he had covered the child's body in it when he moved her. The statement which Horace Carter had written was read aloud. In the dock, Carter folded his arms and listened intently. I asked her to lie back on the bed, which she did and I committed an offence against her. Fearing that she would talk, I got a pillow, shoved it under her head, and after that, I knelt on her arms and then whipped the pillow from underneath her head and shoved it over her face. She struggled for a bit, so to finish her off more quickly, I shoved my fingers round her throat. After that, she ceased struggling she was still breathing so I decided to use string. Surprisingly, Carter noticed that Sheila was still alive, so he cut off her airways using a cloth and a handkerchief. He described how physically challenging it was to end her life. Carter went on to explain that he shared the home with his brother-in-law Frederick Pierce, and Frederick returned not long after the killing. Carter left Sheila's body in his bed until his brother-in-law went out. He recounted step by step how after darkness had fallen he carried Sheila's body outside, 
concealing it near a public works yard. He discarded the cloth and string, leaving them in a dustbin. After Carter's arrest, crime books were found amongst his possessions. This was highlighted in court. They were considered significant as they showed Carter's interest in the subject. The titles were Famous Detective Stories and Mistress of Murder. Counsel for the defence argued in response, I should be sorry to feel the possession of detective stories is indicative of guilt. I don't think it's relevant. Frederick Pierce, the housemate and brother-in-law of Horace Carter, spoke about the night Sheila Atwood disappeared. It was early evening when he arrived home, and he was unaware that a child living on the same street was missing. Frederick remembered Carter acting strangely, repeatedly asking Frederick when he was planning on leaving the house. Frederick didn't leave until 8.30, and was gone for just over an hour. At 10.30, a dog was disturbed and started barking. Horace Carter could be heard trying to calm it down by a neighbour, Mr Ford, the husband of Edith Ford, who found Sheila's body the next day. Until called upon to give evidence... Violet and Albert Atwood remained seated on a bench outside the courtroom. It was all too much to bear. When they were called as witnesses, Violet Atwood had to identify her child's clothing, and Albert Atwood viewed photographs taken at the scene. Both became highly emotional. In his closing remarks, Mr. Elwes, Casey Defending, described the case as a horrifying story of a terrible crime. He pointed out that he had taken no steps to challenge any of the physical evidence put before the court. The barrister appealed to the jury to calmly assess the mental condition of his client at the time of the killing and not be swayed by the, quote, appalling crime Horace Carter had undoubtedly committed. The jury consisted of nine men and three women. It took only 15 minutes for them to arrive at a verdict. Jurors believed that the defendant was guilty of murdering Sheila Atwood, and mentally competent to face the consequences of his actions. Horace Carter was sentenced to death. Horace Carter's sisters were desperate for their brother's life to be spared. They appealed for a reprieve to the then Home Secretary Sir David Maxwell Fife. Carter's younger sisters Mary and Doris went door-to-door over the Christmas period to get signatures from locals. Despite their pleas, some people were unwilling to save a convicted child killer from the gallows. Carter's sibling Mary said, Everyone who met and knew him has been willing to sign. He had many friends and was well-liked 
but evil stories have been circulated about him, and our job is difficult. Mary explained that her brother was the primary breadwinner for the family, and they were struggling without him, particularly their mother Beatrice. Their request for a reprieve was rejected, and Horace Carter was set to hang on New Year's Day. On January 1st, 1952, Horace Carter would meet his fate. Albert Pierpoint, notorious for being chief executioner but well respected for his professionalism, was in charge at Winston Green Prison that day. His father, Henry Albert Pierpoint, had done the same job at the turn of the century. Sid Durnley assisted as a crowd of people shouted outside. Durnley later said that no inmate had aroused the revulsion of Winston Green prison staff like Horace Carter. Winston Green was a Victorian prison built close to a workhouse and what was then called the Lunatic Asylum. Many renovations and changes had been implemented since the original build. A condemned suite was constructed on sea wing out of seven cells next to the gallows to save inmates walking from the hospital wing. The gallows themselves had also gone through changes. Steps were removed so the condemned didn't have to be forced up them before their hanging. The design meant the trapdoor was level to the ground. Once open, the hanging prisoners would sharply fall to the room below. The room was equipped with double doors so the body of the newly deceased could be easily wheeled to the morgue. After all these changes were implemented, Winston Green was the principal destination where the condemned met their end. Since 1885, convicts had been sent from Birmingham, Warwickshire, Worcestershire, Staffordshire and Nottinghamshire. Despite all the changes and upgrades to the prison, less than 50 people were put to death there up until the suspension of the death penalty. In 1969, the suspension was made permanent and there was no use for the condemned suite at Winston Green. However, on New Year's Day 1952, the death penalty was still being carried out, and it was Horace Carter's turn. The noose was put around Carter's neck, and he fell to his death. So where are we now? Hangman Albert Pierpoint, the last chief executioner, retired in 1956 at 51 years of age. He lived to 87. He was the focal point of many books and articles. In 1974, nearly two decades after his retirement, Pierpoint wrote, The fruit of my experience has this bitter aftertaste that I do not now believe that any of those hundreds of executions I carried out has in any way acted as a deterrent against future murder. Capital punishment, in my view, 
achieve nothing except revenge. Albert Pierpoint's opinion differs vastly from that of the assistant he employed for a short time and who aided in the execution of Horace Carter. An equally interesting character was Sid Durnley. The former hangman's assistant would appear in local newspapers from time to time in the decades that followed the death penalty coming to an end. Durnley was of the belief that hanging should be reinstated, even though among the 25 executions he was involved in, one was a wrongful conviction. Timothy Evans fell to his death at the gallows, accused of the murders of his wife and baby daughter, only for it to be discovered years later that serial killer John Christie was responsible. Sid Durnley was the last surviving hangman in Britain. He had done a five-year stint in the role decades before he died of a heart attack in 1994. When he passed away, he was still remembered as the fastest hangman, a probable record for ending someone's life in a mere seven seconds. That prisoner was James Inglis, a man who was convicted of murdering a sex worker. Although Sid Durnley was a lifelong true crime enthusiast, he had decided he wanted to become a hangman at 11 years of age. The payment, however, was not enough to live on. At £3.15, the equivalent of approximately £137 for two days' work. Duty called around five times a year. He was not open with colleagues at his day job as a colliery craftsman when he needed leave on certain days. Only his bosses and wife were privy to his second job as a hangman. Danley didn't leave the position after half a decade voluntarily. Although it was not a subject they discussed openly, his wife believes he was let go because of a dark sense of humour. Dernley's gallows humour led him to tell a joke or comment that went too far, leading his boss Albert Pierpoint to let Dernley go. He lost his dream job, and despite being involved in the execution of over two dozen men, one of whom was innocent, never being chief executioner was the only regret Sid Dernley had before he died. Thank you for listening, and special thanks to our patrons for their support. For more information on this episode, please see the show notes or visit our website, theywalkamonguspodcast.com. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? 
we wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlingbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.